This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we're going to look at the June 6th election in Peru. Pedro Castillo, a socialist trade unionist from an indigenous background, has won its presidency in a nail-biter of an election, still to be confirmed, but it looks like he won. And this is putting an end perhaps, to the neoliberal populism of the corrupt right-wing Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, who sits in jail for corruption. We're going to talk to Nicholas Allen. He's the managing editor of Jacobin America Latina to explain this result and to situate it in the larger context of the crisis of neoliberal rule, the raging pandemic, and popular revolt. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And on today's show, I'm really pleased to have Nicholas Allen with us for the very first time. And we're going to be looking at the June 6th election in Peru. And that was really a nail-biter of an election and some would say a total surprise. In fact, I think that's the consensus. Most people think that the outcome was a complete surprise. And that is that Pedro Castillo, a socialist trade unionist from an indigenous background, won the presidency in what, of course, was a very close race, but looks like it's putting an end to the neoliberal populism of Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, who sits in jail for corruption. And she also went to jail for corruption. So we're very fortunate to have Nicholas Allen with us. He is the managing editor of Jacobin America Latina. And we're going to ask him to explain this result and to situate it in the larger context of the crisis of neoliberal rule, the raging pandemic, and popular revolt. Nicholas Allen, as I mentioned, is a Jacobin contributing editor, and he's the managing editor at Jacobin American Latina, which I really, if you read Spanish, you should take a look at. It's really excellent. And you can read his articles and interviews on Peru in Jacobin in both the English version and in the Latin American version. And Nicholas Alla lives in Buenos Aires. He did his PhD at the University of Buenos Aires. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to have you, and I'm also really interested in your research. I'll just tell the listeners it's on the communist and left-wing movements in Argentina in the 40s and 50s. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And another time we'll do a show on that because I really want to. It's kind of been a lacuna in terms of all the other Latin American coverage that I've done over the years. So let's begin, Nicholas, with the upset victory. Everybody describes it as a surprise. So maybe you could just begin telling us in really sort of introductory terms what Pedro Castillo's victory represents in political, social, and economic terms. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it really, as you said, was an enormous surprise. It would be hard to kind of overstress how really no one saw Pedro Castillo coming. And yeah, his, his victory carries a lot of weight symbolically if we consider, you know, his own socioeconomic and cultural background. We're talking about someone from, as you mentioned, a left-wing trade unionist, indigenous peasant background. In other words, you know, one of the most stigmatized sectors in Peru. Uh, An individual from a background that's been pretty much completely marginalized in Peruvian politics since modern Peruvian politics has existed. So it really is sending shockwaves throughout all of Peru and all of Latin America and the world, as you know, the international headlines suggest. And I think that it, we can get more into this as we discuss the elections more. It's something that I think the Peruvian political class is having a lot of trouble assimilating, understanding. And is, is, as we're seeing, we, we're announcing the victory, but we should, we should add that results have not been confirmed yet. They're very eager to contest now and going into the future when when eventually we're assuming he will be confirmed president they're very eager to challenge in the days and months to come as as his presidency begins that's just a very cursory kind of well um, let's go into all of that but first maybe because you just mentioned that they weren't yet confirmed yeah and i thought that they had finally decided that he won 
But maybe you could just give us a quick rundown of the results. Was it clear cut? Some say it was a razor thin victory, 1% or something like that. Could you go over it so we get a sense? Yeah. So first of all, it absolutely was a razor thin victory with the caveat that they tend to be razor thin victories in at least recent elections. This one, the most recent 2021 presidential election, I think was decided by not even 1%, something like 0.3% the last time I checked. So razor, razor thin. But it's worth adding that the 2016 presidential elections was an even more contested margin. I think it was something like 0.1%. And then as now, just as in 2016, Keiko Fujimori, who was also the candidate then, is contesting the elections, claiming that there was voter fraud. With the singular difference, she's really pulling out all the stops. Pulling out all the stops uh, in the sense of really using all of the available legal instruments she has to contest every single last vote possible. Now, my reading of of this last-ditch effort by Keiko Fujimori is not that she thinks she can overturn the results. One, it looks like even the votes that have been contested wouldn't be enough to give her a victory. And the actual claims for electoral fraud are very thin, for example— she claims that in these regions where Pedro Castillo won in absolutely just overwhelming fashion, mainly in, in rural Peru, primarily, where he won by, in some cases, upwards of 95%. Her claim is that that is impossible, that you know, no candidate can possibly win that overwhelming a victory. When I think the reality is probably that the support for Pedro Castillo in these regions is simply that that powerful. So I think that she doesn't really hope to win the elections or steal the elections. She's trying to, I think, set the groundwork to kind of besmirch the electoral outcome and kind of lay the groundwork for what is to come, which is really a concerted effort by her party, which is the uh, popular force of Fuerza Popular and other center-right, right-wing uh, forces to really make a Pedro Castillo administration impossible, to generate a level of chaos where it's impossible to govern. So I think that's she's really trying to, this is the kind of the opening shot, the shot across the bow for what is to come, which is to be an incredible and even escalated level of conflict from what we saw on the campaign trail. We can talk a little bit more about the campaign if you want. So that's my reading of of this kind of last gasp of the election. Well, I find it really interesting because it seems like the playbook is not confined to Peru. That is that, one, you have societies deeply polarized, but evenly so almost. And we can talk about that in terms of Peru. But you see also laying the groundwork for undermining integrity of elections or at least like in the case of Trump, maybe Netanyahu, and other right-wing populists who basically, you know, want to make a more concerted move to authoritarian-type regimes and denigrate democracy. And so I just wondered if this is also a playbook that she's taken on, or is this something that's been there for, you know, more than one election? So there's that question. And then on the other hand, I'm really curious about, before we get into more about Fujimori and what this vote represented, but maybe just whether or not Pedro Castillo's program, what tilted the balance and what was that program? What social forces did it appeal to? In other words, you've mentioned that he's a maverick in the sense that he's indigenous, not one of the normal regions that produces political candidates, and also comes from both a teacher's union and other aspects. And so it's just a question about the social electoral base. And then we can go back and look at the other side and and the characteristics of the political class and all of that. Right. So the the first part of the question was about whether this kind of anti-democratic maneuvering is part of a, you know, a larger Clearly, it is part of a larger play that we've seen in, you know, with Trump and 
and also in Latin America, point of fact, uh, in Bolivia, in Bolivia, and then yeah, and really throughout the region. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, the simple answer is yes, and then the, the kind of the, the broader answer is that that playbook I think has has in to some extent come from Peru and and the phenomena of Fujimorismo in in particular. This is a you know since the 1990s, this has been a political force that has used nominally democratic institutions to undermine democracy. We have to, you know, maybe we're going too far back, but, you know, since its inception in, in 1990, when Alberto Fujimori won the elections in Peru, they have created a completely kind of anti-democratic political culture in Peru. And, and as, as I mentioned before, you know, Keiko Fujimori has engaged in similar tactics in 2011 when she ran, in 2016 when she ran, and now this third time when she ran. So really, I have this kind of underlying belief that a lot of this kind of region-wide phenomenon that we're seeing around Bolsonaro, a variety of uh, Bolsonaro alkalites in the region, that really, a lot of it can be traced back to Peru and this kind of, we can call soft coup or kind of the hollowing out of democratic politics in the region. So that that's a longer story maybe than what you were asking for. So to get to your point, it really is a kind of a, a textbook or a you know, manual for tainting democratic elections. And I, I think Peru is kind of in the vanguard of, of that in some way. Now the, the second part, is, I don't know if that fully answered your question, but the second yeah, part of your question was about Pedro Castillo's program and his uh, electoral base. His initial program, when he ran in the first round, which was back in April of 2020, was basically drawn from the party for which he was candidate, but not a party member. That that party is Peru Libre, Mm -hmm. which is a self-described Marxist-Leninist formation, has a kind of traditional Marxist program, specifically around nationalization of industries and a variety of kinds of... uh, more uh, maximalist, we might say, uh, programs around political economy. That was the initial program that he did, in fact, win the the first round of elections with by a very narrow margin. Since then, he's tempered that program a little bit in the second round, as I think most analysts agree, as he recognized that he had a shot at, at the presidency. And really... Part of his shift was expressly to present himself as a more moderate candidate than his own party would suggest. And it was also part of a process of forming coalitions with other, you might say, more center-left parties that he needs for political reasons, for electoral alliances, but also, as we're seeing now, for for governance, uh, governing alliances. I'm referring specifically to the Juntos por el Perú, which is now Nuevo Perú which is headed by Veronica Mendoza. Mm-hmm. So he's moderated his program, specifically at the center of his moderation, is mainly around this question of renegotiating mining concessions rather than full-on nationalization as per the Peru Libre program. And he's done so, again, to make himself more palatable to an electorate, which it should be emphasized is still very left phobic. We can go into the reasons for why there's a lot of, why this kind of McCarthyist red scare rhetoric still has a lot of traction in Peru. And also to just give a sense that he has a real viable governing program, that it doesn't seem like something just lifted out of, you know, kind of the Cold War Soviet playbook. And then the other question you asked was about his electoral and social base. So this gets a little bit into his biography. I mean, everything about his candidacy, you know, leads back to his own background. He began his, quote unquote, political trajectory as a member of what are called the the rondas. The rondas are uh, basically like peasant patrols or self-organized peasant self-defense units that were formed in the 1970s, basically to prevent things like cattle rustling and, and theft in those areas of Peru where the state basically had no reach or was not able to you know, provide basic social provisions. So he began there and 
quickly joined in the 1980s in the fight against the Shining Path or Sendero Luminoso, which was a your audience, I don't know if they know it, but it was a left-wing armed guerrilla group that basically engaged in, in terrorist activities against the state and kind of had certain kinds of Pol Potian tendencies in terms of you know, waging war in, in the countryside against peasants themselves. So Pedro Castillo took part in these rondas where he basically defended indigenous and peasant communities against these terrorist organizations. And that's where he got his start. From there, he went on to, as a rural school teacher, he eventually ascended through the ranks of the teacher's trade union. And that kind of came to a head in 2017 when he led a more combative wing of a very large teacher strike against then President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. And that event in 2017 was kind of what projected him to maybe not national visibility, but certainly a greater level of, of visibility. So that in terms of his social base, we have the rondas, which it should be emphasized, these are, um, they still exist in Peru, and they're v- very important at the level of political organization in the, in the countryside in Peru to this day, and he, he still counts on the support of those groups. He still counts on the support of the, the teachers' union, which is actually the largest trade union in Peru. And then just the rural countryside in general would be kind of his broad electorate, which is, as we've seen from the the voting numbers in this last second round, are overwhelmingly favorable. If you go through and look at the electoral map, we see that in regions like Ayacucho or Puno. These are all um, kind of along the Andean region in the south of Peru, but also even in the, in the Amazonian region, which is more in the center, the Numbers of support are, again, upwards of 80, 90% in in his favor. So that's his uh, real electoral base. On the one part, it's it's a kind of base level identification with who he is, with his background, a sense of, you know, he's one of us. (laughs) But it's also, I think it goes beyond that too, the, the issues that he's been raising specifically around renegotiating mining contracts with foreign, you know, transnational mining companies is really, it kind of, it touches a nerve for a lot of these communities in the aforementioned regions, Ayacucho, Puno, Arequipa, where there has just been a a savage level of extractive activity at the same time that the communities in in the neighboring areas have have, uh, seen just skyrocketing, skyrocketing poverty, haven't seen any of the benefits of that flow of capital. And so that, you know, his slogan, which kind of condenses all of that is a, no poor people in a rich country, because really Peru for the last 20 years or so has seen really a, a boom in, in commodity exports, primarily minerals. So, yeah. I think one of the things that I, you know, and I want to segue back in a moment to the other side, to the right, but I think you wrote it in one of your Jacobin articles that his victory was seen as a revenge of the regions. You know, that this was not the normal place where the political class draws its candidates from. And you've explained it in terms of his program. And I want to go back later to talk more about what he represents and his relationship to the rest of the left and whether there was unity and all of that. But first, like, just because you started to talk about the extractive industries and his policies, and I just said it was the revenge of the regions, meaning that it upset this long-term pattern that always favored urban over rural and tended to degrade the indigenous population. But it also, as you said, I think, and this is your quote, Castillo's support tracks closest in those parts of Peru where extractive industries have been booming at the same time, as you just said, Nicholas Allen, that poverty was skyrocketing. And his slogan was, no, as you mentioned, no more poor people in a rich country. And that he was going to start taxing these mining interests so that this also would raise alarm bells among what we would call, I guess, the owners and that part of the political class. So one would think that this came from somewhere and that this would be, you know, a long time demand. And and I'm probably going all over the map here because you started to talk about Peru Libre and you talk about that he is not a member of it, but he espoused their program. And others are saying, well, this guy is just like another Evo Morales in Bolivia. So 
maybe you could just talk a little bit more in that respect about what a threat this program represents, even though others have said it's very scant, you know, and that it leaves a lot of room. And, you, and of course, uh, it sounds like it was probably smart for him to be less detailed instead of more, to just do a broad social vision rather than a wonky step-by-step that everyone might reject or some parts of it. So go ahead on that, and then we'll go back to Keiko Fujimori and what that represents. Sure. Yeah, so you're right that there are some sectors of the Peruvian left and the global left who have felt a sense of deception that maybe this moderation was kind of like kind of a death foretold. You know, Mm -hmm. an insurgent left-wing project that was dead before it could even be born. And specifically in the case of Peru, there's kind of the the ghost of a similar trajectory that took place with Oshanta Humala in 2011. He was a similar candidate in the sense that he had a a left-wing program with a lot of kind of nominal gestures to the the Latin American pink tie, that he was going to form alliances with Hugo Chavez and so on and so forth. And he quickly collapsed under pressure from basically the business and uh, corporate lobbies in Peru, especially as uh, that period after his victory saw a lot of capital flight and, and you know, the stock market uh, collapse. So again, there, there's a certain fear, which is, which is not unfounded in this kind of progressive moderation on the campaign trail that we've seen with Pedro Castillo. When I say moderation, some of the crit- of his program, for example, there's the nationalization that he's kind of walked back on, as we mentioned. There's a demand to nationalize the independent central bank in Peru, which is kind of, you know, as in all countries, is kind of the stalwart for imposing fiscal austerity or fiscal orthodoxy. And he had initially entertained that idea and walked that back as well. So there's a variety of kind of areas in political economy where he's shown moderation. And the, I think the consensus seems to be that part of that is because he's under the, I don't want to use the word under the influence, but he's being advised by an economist, a progressive economist, who comes from Veronica Mendoza's camp. His name is Pedro Frank. And he is, in fact, a former World Bank economist. He's a kind of a, maybe a neo-Keynesian of sorts, who has tried to make the central planks of his campaign around protecting national industry, around targeted uh, investment in certain strategic areas, around encouraging what's called the the popular economy, which is basically a small-scale or or mid-scale agricultural production, mostly for domestic consumption. So it's a kind of wean country off of foreign imports, those are kind of the, the central planks of what exists now as his economic platform. So my point would be that the central planks that exist today in Pedro Castillo's program are very radical by the standards of a ruling class like Peru, a ruling class, which it has to be said, it has been extremely wedded to this program of complete lack of capital controls a kind of almost textbook model of trickle-down economics, complete deregulation of all industries, complete lack of social provisions. This is, again, to put a name on it, this has been the the Fujimori model that existed since 1990 and continues to exist today, even despite the fact that a lot of the political class is against the more authoritarian gestures of Fujimori. That is the model that exists today and that enjoys a consensus among most of the political class. So is it a reformist program that that Castillo is is presenting? Yeah, it is. But in terms of political viability and in terms of what would still represent a challenge to the the political class in Peru, I think it it is very radical by, by Peruvian standards. Now, the fear, again, is, is not unfounded that it could end up leading to some kind of co-optation by the right, especially as, as, as we're seeing that there's going to be really a concerted effort by the right to make his, even his most modest reformist program, very difficult to, to impose. 
But for the time being, it, it's, it remains, as we've seen in the campaign, something that has absolutely scandalized the right. So I think, you know, let's pick up on that because there's there's so much that you've already said that you know i want to sort of unpack and ask other questions about but just to go back you know to the fujimori or fujimori as they say it project there which is utterly corrupt so i want to sort of go back first of all to ask in a way whether or not castillo's victory was a triumph for his program or just about defeating the Fujimori. And then on the other hand, if the latter, if that's the case, what are they rejecting? And so what does it mean? And you've started to lay it out about uh, neoliberal populism in Mm -hmm. Peru and especially with the Fujimoris. This is the scion of the family, but who has been a political figure and also, I guess, has been in prison. But, you know, I think in another article, you, you mentioned that Fujimori is a mercantilist. And that you unpack it by spelling out that she's pro-private enterprise, but not necessarily pro-competitive markets. And on the contrary, backs a kind of capitalism in which political connection is central. And that's more important to how companies do their market shares. And so in that sense, she represents business interests that prefer you know, to remain in the shadows. So it's sort of like a mafia-like capitalism. And I really wanted to bring that up because this is the trend that we're seeing, you know, in in this period, a longer discussion, but I've had several long interviews with Robert Brenner talking about, you know, in this period of squeezed profits or the inability to do profits that in the period of finance capital, that it's easier to make money through your political connections than to actually produce things. But here you have in Peru, I guess some hint of that, but on the other hand, you do have a country that's based on extraction of mining and other sorts of things. So it makes it different, but yet they're similar. So I want you to go back and talk a little bit about what they're rejecting and what this neoliberal populism looks like in Peru. Yeah, so I think that the the first part of your question was about whether this is primarily a defeat Mm -hmm. of of Fujimori or if, if it is alternatively a victory, you know, for an actual program, or, you know, kind of a proposal, an alternative proposal for something different. I think, you know, the major force in Peruvian politics since the fall of Fujimori in 2000 has been anti-Fujimorismo. That is a kind of very heterogeneous political block that runs everywhere from, you know, the far left to the center, maybe not the far right, but that basically opposes Fujimori for a variety of reasons. And that has affected, has been effective in defeating Keiko Fujimori, Alberto's, you know, political heiress, in repeated elections, 2011, 2016, and again in 2021. What that has meant is it's been kind of, it's kind of locked Peru into this kind of perpetual lesser evilism. At the same time, everyone, the 2016 candidate was, I think, maybe kind of an archetypal example of where everyone really held their nose and went to the ballot boxes to vote for someone who whose sole virtue is not being Keiko Fujimori, the left included. I think that that is in play, the kind of anti-Fujimori vote, the kind of lesser evilism did play a part in, in Pedro Castillo's victory. But I think at the same time, the, the novel factor of Pedro Castillo is we really do have someone who is presenting, you know, an alternative proposal for the country. One thing we haven't discussed, but I think it's probably relevant to bring up, is that who is raising the flag of rewriting the constitution, a constitution that was imposed by Fujimori, and implies it's a constitution which basically locks the country into all of the different kinds of neoliberal arrangements that it has. So by virtue of the fact that that has been kind of one of his leading campaign promises and has survived these moderations, means that there is a very real, very strong proposal that people voted for. And I, again, the, the, the proof of the fact that Pedro Castillo won by his own merit and not by simply being, by not being the Fujimori, is that a lot of the anti-Fujimori bloc actually broke in this instance, broke in favor of Keiko Fujimori, as paradoxical as that sounds. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, explain that. Yeah, well... The, so the, the 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 kind of the paradigmatic example is is Mario Vargas Llosa, 
who is a, a Nobel Prize winning novelist and a, a great one at that, but a, a very increasingly reactionary person in, in the political realm who historically, since 1990, when he lost to Alberto Fujimori in the presidential election, has been kind of one of the, the stalwarts of this anti-Fujimori bloc. And in, in this particular instance, very publicly, broke in favor of, of Fujimori, the, the, the very force that he, his whole political capital is based around opposing. So I think, you know, I, again, this is just to drive home the point that I think Pedro Castillo has kind of broken beyond this idea of lesser evilism that Peru has been locked in for a while. And yeah, so I, I think that, that there's real teeth to his proposal. And I think that, I think, well, let me just ask something, you know, that you just raised because you brought in Vargas Llosa and, you know, he's a neoliberal and mm-hmm. it's really been kind of disappointing that, <laughs> that a lot of the writers in Peru have been so neoliberal. And it raises the question about, I guess, the threat that is seen to mm-hmm. the model that is represented by not just, you know, somebody from the teachers union, but somebody that represents the indigenous and and more rural regions and the regions that are not considered the ones that draw the political class. And it upsets everything in the region and in the world that we will get to at the end. So I just wanted maybe you'd, for you to underscore that a little bit, because we've also talked about the, the widespread hatred of the Fujimori model. And on the other hand, how corrupt it is. And so for these Nobel Prize <laughs> writer to then, I guess, break with his anti-Fujimori-ismo to back her rather than, you know, the candidate that represents a threat to the existing order. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that and whether or not this is, you know, because because we don't have a huge a blueprint of what it is that he represents, but you've said enough, renegotiating the terms with uh, the mining industry, questions of nationalizing the central bank. And I want to get to the last one after you go through this, and that would be, you know, about the Constitution. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. So this is it cronyism that's being rejected, or is it, you know, capitalism that's being rejected? <laughs> you got the drift. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the the threat that Castillo represents, it's hard to, to, to pin down in political economy exactly what the threat is, because, he, again, he's been vague up until now about what specifics he envisions for his political economic program. I would actually, you know, just to stick with the, the example of Vargas Llosa for a moment, it's interesting because... You know, people like to make these these parallels between uh, Castillo and Evo Morales. When Evo Morales won the elections in 2005, Vargas Llosa intervened, you know, in the public arena to say that that election should also be questioned because <laughs> because he thought that, and this, I'm practically quoting him, he thought that an indigenous party, a kind of socialist stamp, was going to be sowing racial hatred and this kind of in, uh, ethnic separatism. And I think, you know, that, that if we can kind of copy and paste that attitude a little bit onto the present, I think that on one level, the threat that Castillo represents is that he, he does come from, he's deeply connected to a social base in trade unionism and then also in, in you know, indigenous self-organization which doesn't really have any channels for communicating with the political class. So he's an outsider in the sense that there's no, the the political class looks upon this guy as someone that they haven't, maybe no way of co-opting. They don't, someone who doesn't, in their words, you know, know the rules of the game. And, uh, and in fact, in in the past has engaged in, I don't want to say anti, I don't want to say authoritarian rhetoric, but has said, very loudly things that rile a kind of liberal consensus, things like yeah, dissolving the the judiciary branch and, and dissolving the, the the Congress. So there is a kind of plebeian, I guess I can, if I can use that word, plebeian element that the political class doesn't know what to do with. And again, this is, this is very similar, you know, to stick with this parallel with Evo Morales. 
It's very similar to what, what happened in, in Peru in 2005 when he won. We, we can go into the differences too later if you want with Evo Morales. So that's one level of the threat that Castillo represents for a political class, which is really, you know, it's, it's based on uh, favor trading, you know, horse trading and, and very kind of uh, corrupt backroom dealings. So, I mean, I, I can kind of speculate about like, what, what the political economic threat would be. I, Castillo's presidency would represent, represent you know, it, it goes back to the model imposed by Fujimori, which again, it was heavily dependent on these extractive industries, which produced a level of uh, kind of trickle down, mainly to the, the urban centers in Lima, Cachao, and created a, a certain kind of very precarious emergent middle class in those areas, which have actually been kind of one of the major electoral bases of Fujimorismo historically. Castillo represents a challenge to that model, no, in the sense that he's really tearing at the strings of what has been this commodity-driven export, commodity-export model, which it has to be said, it, the threat is not only Castilla, but the crisis is, is, a, is, is world historical. It, it, it has to do with, you know, the, the fall in commodity prices, which has been brutal in terms of the effects it's had in, in the Peruvian economy uh, since 2013, 2014, and which is creating a lot of this widespread unrest in Peru and kind of came to a head in 2020 when there were really large street protests. So I think that without having a very explicit economic program as of yet, there's a sense that the model that has guaranteed political traction for Fujimori, for Fujimori adjacent forces is losing purchase. And it's, and we're seeing now these kinds of dark horse candidates who are able to channel that discontent. I wanted to ask you, I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, Nicholas Allen, but I want to, you know, I do want to go into a little bit more about the social mobilization and the relationship to the left that Pedro Castillo has and, and represents. Uh, one of the things that, that you've mentioned and that has come out is that even though his program was short on detail, it was centered on social mobilization and accumulated, like let's call it bottom-up working class power rather than sort of technocratic quick fixes. And this is obviously something that would sound to be threatening. But, you know, I think for most people, we just don't know that much about the social protest movement that's existed in Peru in the more recent period. But all the articles that you sent me from uh, from Jacobin America Latina stressed that there was rather a lot of it. And I want to make reference to something else that you said, which is about the Constitution. And, of course, as we saw in Chile, that a central demand that emerged from the social protest movement of October uh, 2019 before the pandemic was for a new constitution to replace the Pinochet one that basically enshrined neoliberal rule and made it impossible for any kind of reform. And that demand that was won uh, was for, you know, to have an election that they just had uh, less than a month ago go that saw like a complete defeat of the right and allowed for the election of, uh, let's call it, electors to the new constitutional convention. And part of that was to, to replace the Pinochet constitution with one that is written by the people without the political class being involved and one with gender parity and indigenous representation. And now it seems that, you know, Peru has a very, you just mentioned the Fujimori constitution, which sounds like it's probably pretty similar to the Pinochet one. And so that means that no matter what the program is that Castillo is promoting, that he's going to run into difficulties given the existing legal arrangements with the Constitution. And so leaving aside whether he represents socialism or something else, any, is he going to be able to enact any kind of meaningful political reform? Right. Yes, well, just picking up on the first part of what you were saying about political mobilization and, and maybe the, the fact that it's not that been that visible. You said it, you said for outsiders, but I would add for, for many Peruvians, it's 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 been a very invisibilized uh, social force. You know, I, there's a measure taken by Latino Barometro, which mm. actually says that after Bolivia, um, Peru actually has the I think 
the highest number of citizens mobilized in social protest. And that is, uh, it's again, it's visible to anyone who spends any time in Peru. It, it's generally focused around these ex- extractive sites, which are heavily militarized. I think perhaps the most militarized in the region, full of uh, you know violence against any kind of uh, social protest. And it should be added that they've been, ever since Fujimori, basically waged a crusade against any kind of left, any kind of social mobilization. They've really been beaten down, but they remain. They remain active and present. And so just in the same way that Pedro Castillo kind of came out of nowhere, and I'm saying this in quotes, you can't see that, but, um, you know, I think that the, the social mobilization, the social protest that has been largely invisible because precisely because it's been in the regions where the media doesn't pay attention or, or for a variety of reasons has also been, uh, you know, invisibilized or made invisible. And I, and my hope at least is that, that this will come to the, the forefront with Castillo presidency. Now the other question you, you raised was, you know, how, what, what, uh, kind of hopes can we place on a, on this reformist campaign, and specifically around the constitution, which is kind of the the, the centerpiece? This is kind of where we get to the heart of like why really we're just starting mm. the, the struggle in Peru for a popular government for a popular program is just starting now, and it's going to be ferocious because Castillo is going to have to engage in a very delicate balancing act. One, because he doesn't have a majority in Congress. His party, Peru Libre, has the most seats, but uh, doesn't have a majority. The majority belongs to the right, center-right, which still gravitates around this Fujimorismo phenomenon that we're talking about. And that majority in Congress needs to sign off on a referendum for the new constitution. No. So absent that majority, Pedro Castillo has the option of calling for social mobilization, social pressure, which has in the past actually been an option that other presidents have activated when when there's been gridlock, when an opposition majority has opposed projects of of that kind or even much less significant measures. This happened under Vizcarra, who was the previous uh, president in, in 2020. So he will want to do that. He will want to call on social mobilization in the inevitable case that the Congress, which has already declared its intent to oppose any kind of a referendum on a new constitution. And then there's the, there's the, the additional complication that if he should do that, if he should go outside the Congress to call on the people, on the Peruvian people to take the streets, there could be a reprisal from, from the Congress, which has already been used again in, in recent years, to basically depose that was actually what happened in 2020 with the previous president of Vizcarra, who was engaging in maybe more uh, in corruption investigations than, than Congress would have preferred. And so here enters this kind of dynamic of moderation and caution from the get-go, where I think in political terms, he, for his government to be a success, he will need to keep raising the banner of a new constitution, but he has to be in the months to come. He has to be very careful to maintain his popularity with the people. And he has to be able to be sure he has to take a kind of a, you know, a measure of how popular his support is. If he's going to engage in, you know, this dynamic that I'm describing where he basically has to go head to head with, uh, with an opposition Congress. So it's a very delicate moment. And I think that the battle is just beginning right now. I want to ask you just basically, you know, you've you've very well described Nicholas Allen, this sort of eggshells that he has to walk on uh, in order to remain popular and uh, also to be effective. You know, and you also mentioned earlier that uh, Cold War propaganda, anti-communist propaganda has a lot of currency in Peru. And then there's also the way that almost all the left has been tarred by the example of Sendero Luminoso or Shining Path. It really was a pretty horrific 
sort of Mao's Pol Potist guerrilla organization that, you know, didn't take care to build support among the peasantry, but peasantry, but seemed to alienate it. And so um, even though it seems to have retreated and been defeated and is not, uh, you know, that, well, I'm going to ask, is there much remnant of Sendero Luminoso and does he have to kind of overcome that? But really what that question is about is for you to sort of describe the left in Peru today. And because you also men, mentioned the more traditional left candidate, Veronica Mendoza. And so did the left have to do a sort of about face and quickly come in and unify around the Castillo candidacy? And what are the issues and how do they deal with that anti-communism, you know, for anything that could be seen as even social democratic or populist in terms of reform, not right wing, but left wing? Yeah. So, uh, so the state of the left in Peru, well, the, as, as you said, as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, the, the kind of red scare mongering in, in Peru is probably only paralleled by maybe something like in Colombia, no? which also had its own kind of a left wing armed formation. And it's so profoundly effective that it, it, it even reaches to a lot of left wing groups like Veronica Mendoza's Nuevo Peru, who, who really are very are at great pains, not, not only to separate themselves from from the, the the shining path, which seems like a natural reaction, but really to kind of you know separate themselves from what are some of the you know, classic banners of the left. You no, know, they they you know we're not communists. You know they they avoid the word socialism. They, there's a there's a very concerted effort to to make the left or a progressive palatable in, in that kind of rarefied climate. And, you know, you'd asked if, if the shining path even exists anymore, which seems like a relevant question in the midst of all of this area. It doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's gone through so many uh, kind of fractions and splintering over the years that the main, well, the main leader should be said, uh, Abisman Guzman, alias uh, <laughs> Compañero Gonzalo, has been, uh, has been in prison for forever I, I think the last uh, 10 years at least and there are again splinter groups of uh the shining path that exists in primarily the amazons and but are ba- basically just morphed into like kind of a, a narco terrorist organization again you know i don't want to force the parallels but you know some similar things have happened in colombia so the, is but, that an obstacle you know for castillo to overcome in trying to unify the left or is that just something that the right uses to tar the left it's something that the, that the right uses to tar the left. And it's so, again, this is kind of to maybe uh, belabor the point, but it's so effective that someone such as Castillo, who literally fought against the Shining Path, can be tarred with that. It, it, it's telling that uh, someone who literally fought the Shining Path in the 80s and 90s could actually be tarred w- with this kind of spurious association with the shining path. So it, again, it, that discourse, uh, it, it has traction. Now, you know, I, th- I think that even as that kind of McCarthyist discourse is still, you know, it, it still has great political effect. Nevertheless, Castillo won. I, I, it kind of, it drives home how remarkable it is that a, declared leftist candidate could overcome the wall of propaganda around, uh, you know, the the shining path. And and there's a, you know, there's a specific term in in Peru that they use for this kind of uh, anti-communist discourse. They call it terruca, which basically it just means kind of guilt by association, associating someone with, uh, with left-wing terrorism incidentally it actually has like kind of racial connotations also so it kind of lump it kind of lumps together social movements indigenous and, and left-wing terrorism but anyways and so it's it's all the more remarkable that he's able to over was able to overcome that hurdle and you know I, I think it points to maybe some kind of a sea change in a way that maybe it, it also doesn't in I, I sometimes reach out to the example of uh, Colombia no which has also been obviously affected by, uh, you know, left-wing armed struggle, conflict with the state. And, and also in, in, in Colombia, we have the, the, the case of um, Gustavo Petro, 
incidentally was also a, a former uh, armed guerrilla and, and is currently the projected forerunner for the 2022 election. So in, in these two countries, it seems as though there seems there's some kind of a tectonic shift happening where that discourse, while still strong, is losing its purchase. And the left is starting to find its feet again. I don't know how much time I have left. But I we have say. very little time left, and I have a final <laughs> yeah. question that yeah, yeah. Okay, I hope okay, you yeah. can you know, get to, and that is what this yeah. represents in a regional continental mm-hmm. sense. Is this more of the, a pink tide going reddish? And you know, will this be sort of some kind of you know, boost to other ki- similar kinds of candidacies around Latin America? And how do you see that being, does it represent a blow to U.S. interests in the region? Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly, it, it, to take the last part of your question, it obviously represents a blow to U.S. interests because Pedro Castillo has been explicit that he would reject uh, the organization USAID. He's been very explicit about uh you know, his, his interest in reviving the project of regional integration, reviving UNASUR, you know, he, on the campaign trail, he had to kind of put an arm's distance from Chavismo, et cetera. But, but, but again, it's an, it, without disowning the government of, of Venezuela. So I, I think it is a, a shift, you, you use the term, if it could be like a red tide rather than a pink tide. <laughs> I don't know. Reddish. Yeah. yeah, reddish. I don't know if I feel confident enough to, to offer any kinds of uh, tide predictions because uh, on the one hand, it seems uh, on the one hand that it's a, it's a political development so specific to Peru. And again, I'm sorry to harp on this, but maybe something similar happening in, in Colombia as well. No, again, these are two these are two countries which have had basically de facto dictatorships at a time when all the other countries were going through their democratic transitions, being ruled by either social democratic forces or, or even neoliberal governments in some cases. So it's really a case where I think that these two countries, in particular Colombia and Peru, are having their so-called you know, neoliberal crisis a little bit later than some of those other countries I've mentioned. So... Again, I don't know if I, I don't know if I feel confident enough to speak in macro or regional terms about a tendency, but there there seems to be, if we include Chile in the picture as well, there seems to be a very clear instance of you know the torchbearers of, of the Washington consensus in the region are are, le- are leaving the party, so to speak. So that seems very encouraging. Um, well, we're probably going to have to leave it there. And I want to thank you so much, Nicholas Allen. We've spent the hour trying to, I guess, explain. Uh, this, I guess you'd have to say a historic election in Peru with the victory not yet confirmed, but all but seeming to move in that direction of Pedro Castillo, who is a trade unionist, indigenous uh, and rural member of or li- campaigning along with this party, Peru Libre, Free Peru. And you've really kind of unpacked most of it for us. And I want to thank you so much and let the listeners know, too, that you can read uh, Nick's articles on Jacobin Jacobin. Com here, but also if you read Spanish, there's a whole slew of articles there at Jacobin America Latina, and Nicholas Allen is the managing editor of that journal as well as a contributing editor of Jacobin uh, here in the U.S. And he's also uh, living in Buenos Aires and has done his Ph.D. on the left there. We're going to talk about Argentina another time. I want to invite you back for that. We, you know, your president just made a, a, a kind of historic gaffe back what all of that meant Um, but we don't have time to do it here and i just want to thank you for joining us today nick thank you so much that was great